What's the most embarrassing moment you've ever experienced? I won't tell you mine, because that would be too embarrassing. Um, but I will tell you somebody else's. There's a, a story of a woman who was walking through the department store in the mall, and she saw a, a fur coat that was just glorious, and she was interested in it. And she went up, and she was so kind of transfixed by it that she started to uh, just feel it you know, and the, the texture of it, and then she actually, you know, weirdly enough, started to, to rub her face on it just to see what it would feel like against her own face, uh, this coat on this mannequin. And as she was doing that, she realized actually that the coat was not on a mannequin, the, but a real live woman wearing that coat that she was rubbing her face on. We are often embarrassed by our own actions. Do we also have to be embarrassed by the actions of God? If we are completely honest, and if we're paying attention, we'd probably admit that as we read through our Bibles and come up against certain passages that there might be a part of us that's embarrassed by what we read, embarrassed by certain passages and portions of Scripture uh, that might cause us to say, well, I probably don't want to read this one to anybody else. One of those texts is our passage this morning, Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 20. I'm going to read it all in full, and you'll start to see why this might be a passage that is embarrassing for us as modern Christians, that this would be in our Bibles. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 20. It says, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, and all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock, and every, everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are there trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. This is a passage about holy war in Israel. It was the war they were to make as they entered into the promised land. It calls for the total destruction and elimination of the people in the promised land. It might cause us to question the goodness of God. 
Can God be good while ordering the elimination of an entire group of people? Is that not genocidal? How can we worship a God who is so seemingly cruel and ruthless? These are the kinds of questions, things that are major stumbling blocks today to the faith. When a non-Christian hears these kinds of things from the Bible, reads them in the Bible, they may initially reject Christianity altogether as barbaric and oppressive. Now more than ever, I think these are the kinds of objections that are hard for people to understand in our world. It, It used to be that in apologetics, what you're really dealing with is questions of reason and evidence and science and Uh, Really the question of whether or not God is true, or the historical accuracy of the Bible. Uh, Most apologetics once sought to answer the questions of whether or not God exists. Now, it seems the questions many people have revolve around whether or not God is good. Tim Keller writes about this in his book, The Reason for God. He writes, When I first came to New York City almost 20 years ago, the main problem people had with the Bible was in the areas of science and history. Today, things have shifted somewhat. I find more people now especially upset by what they call the outmoded and regressive teaching of the Bible. It seems to support slavery and the subjugation of women. These positions appear so outrageous to contemporary people that they have trouble accepting any parts of the Bible's message. In later sermons in the series, we'll talk about slavery and how women are portrayed in scripture. We'll deal with those, but for now, I want to deal with this big question that comes up from Deuteronomy 20. Is God genocidal? Is God genocidal? Is he a kind of God who would systematically wipe out entire tribes of innocent people without any reason? Is God good, or is he some kind of moral monster, which is a phrase that has been used to describe God? Is he a genocidal tyrant? If so, how can we possibly believe in him? So I want to answer that question by going through one of the more troubling passages of Scripture in Deuteronomy 10 through 20, the conquest of the land of Canaan, and answer the question of whether God is a genocidal moral monster or if there's another way of understanding this text and texts like it in Scripture. So let's turn to verse 10 to start off as we unpack these verses. Turn to verse 10 and 11, and the first thing we notice in these rules for war for Israel is the first thing they're supposed to do is offer peace. This is how Israel first engages with war, and God commands them to engage, is first by offering peace. That's what verses 11 through 12 are all about. That's what they describe, offering peace to nations before them. Verse 10, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. So these verses in Deuteronomy 20 lay out Israel's procedures for going to war. And in order to understand this, we have to understand the big picture context of this. And the first key element of the context is that this is talking about Israel as a nation. That is important. Israel is a a religiously defined, a theocracy, a religiously bound nation. So when we talk about these verses, this does not apply to the church, the New Testament people of God. These laws do not apply directly to the church. 
And the church of Jesus Christ is never called to make physical war because the church is a spiritual people. Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But Israel was a geopolitical people, a nation that interacted with other nations. The New Testament people of God are not called to go to war because we are not a nation. The Old Testament people of God could not avoid war because they were a nation. As a nation, war was inevitable. Conflict with other nations was inevitable. So God will give laws to Israel as to how they are to engage in war and to govern their war. And you could say, well, why don't they just live peaceably and just never take up arms? And I would say, I would love to live in your naive fantasy world where they could do that and exist. But that's not the world we live in. It's not the world we've ever lived in where nations just live peaceably and never have to take up arms. Particularly, now remember the big picture context, who is Israel? They're God's people. And if we live in a world where we believe, as we do, that evil is real, and that the devil is real... Israel was never going to just sit there peaceably free from attack. They would always be under attack from the world around them. Because evil is real, and the devil is real, and he was particularly opposed to Israel, and we'll see why. If Israel did not know how to go to war, then they would be eliminated. So God will give them rules. Now, also consider the context of Deuteronomy. What is the context of Deuteronomy, this book that is written? It's the kind of reiteration of the law, of Leviticus, given again why and where and when. This is at the end of Israel's years of wandering in the desert after being liberated from Egypt and before they entered into the promised land. So they are on the edge of the promised land, that land that God had promised to Abraham, and they are now given the law... Again, before they enter, God telling them, this is how you are going to be a holy people in the holy land. Again, this will be important later. These laws and these laws for war are specifically given to Israel at this time in their history for a specific reason. We'll unpack that. These are not necessarily laws, all of them, that would govern them forever, but there's a specific context and reason why some of these words are in here. There's the immediate context of this passage in chapter 20. In this chapter, God gives Israel general instructions about warfare. Verses 1 through 10, he tells them not to fear larger enemies because their victory is from God. Tells them that they are to receive a priestly blessing before they engage in battle. They're also told that if anyone fears battle, has any obligations at home, they're free to go back home and not engage. They may be dismissed from the war. And then the Lord gives instructions for military engagement. And the first thing they are to do is offer peace. This was more merciful than the nations around them. Israel, before going to war, was to offer peace to the people. The word used to describe is a treaty or a covenant. You can offer a peace treaty. If their opponent accepted peace, they would become part of Israel as their servants. And again, we'll talk in weeks ahead about what that meant, slavery and servitude in Israel So that's outside the scope of the sermon today. We'll get there. But for now, I want you to note that the first thing they are to do is offer peace. That is to be their first instinct in war because it is God's first instinct. 
to offer peace and mercy. Before the conflict happens, the first thing they are to do is see if there is a way for peace. Because that is God's disposition. And it ought to be our disposition as his people. We may not engage in violent physical war as Christians, but we engage in all sorts of conflict. So whether it be conflict in marriage or disputes about matters of the faith with other believers or non-Christians or complaints at church or whatever the tension may be, your first instinct disposition ought to be peace, reconciliation, because that is God's heart. That's God's heart for his people even as they engage militarily. First step is offering peace. The second move is conquering enemies. And that's what's described in verses 12 through 15. Here, God lays out the rules for conquering enemies. Verse 12. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock, and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. You shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So if the opposing nation chooses war, and they choose to fight, then that's what Israel will do. Notice the Lord says, when the Lord gives victory. The text assumes victory and that God would give it. Why? Because the God of Israel is the one true God and no one can oppose him. And if Israel is going to win, they would need him. This is something we don't maybe always recognize reading through our Bibles, but historically speaking, Israel was never um, the biggest kid on the block. Israel was always one of the smaller peoples surrounded by giants, whether it be the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, whoever it may be, there were always bigger, larger, stronger people around. So if Israel was to exist and even win in any battles, it would have to be by, the God, by God's hand himself. And he would tell them, don't trust in chariots, don't trust in horses, trust in me. I am the one who will win the battle for you. And we see that all throughout scripture. When Israel trusts God, they win. When they don't, they lose. But it also assumes here, in this text, there's the assumption that the Lord is with them. And this is important, those of you who know your Old Testament. What happens when Israel goes to war without the Lord's blessing? They are immediately routed, right? So they are only to engage in battle when they have the Lord's blessing. If they do it without the Lord's blessing, it's bad news. So you'll see later on in Scripture, David, the king, asking the Lord, should I engage in this? And the Lord will give his response. 
So it was only by the Lord's will, the Lord's decree, they would go to battle. They weren't supposed to go to battle for their selfish purposes or for any other reason, only when blessed by God. And if they were blessed by God, and that's the assumption here, is that they were, that the Lord would be with them and Israel would conquer. So if the Lord was with them, if their enemies did not want peace, then they would conquer. What would happen then was they would eliminate all the males, eliminate any who would seek retribution or have the power to do so, then take in, by mercy spare the women and the children and make them a part of your nation. Then the wealth and the spoil they would enjoy as theirs as a provision God gave. Wealth was not Israel's because they earned it, but only because God provided and gave it into their hands. Now notice what verse 15 says. It makes clear. This is how they were to treat all the nations around the promised land who were far off. So there's a distinction that's going to be made. We'll get there in a few moments. There's something else you're supposed to do with the nations in the promised land. But for all the other nations, this was the normal course of war for them. For any other nation, first seek peace. That's the first act of mercy. Then, second, if peace isn't possible, conquer, but spare the women and children. In those two acts of mercy, they were already more merciful than many of the nations around them. Even then, it does sound brutal to our modern ears. But remember, Israel was a nation in the midst of battle, often being attacked by other nations. So these two steps of offering peace and then sparing women and children was a show of mercy on their part in the midst of a tumultuous world. And there's one other thing I think you, we ought to really take into consideration here as we consider the war of Israel, and that is that it was critical that Israel be preserved. Why? Because the Savior of the world would be born through Israel. The one who would crush the serpent, the seed of Abraham, the one who would ultimately bring peace to the entire world would be a son of Israel. So God is going to be very particular about making sure that Israel as a nation survives because if Israel was eliminated, the Messiah would not be born. It should then come as no surprise that Israel was often under attack. Because the devil is real. Because there's evil in this world. And the story of your Bibles, and the story of history, is a story of rival kingdoms. The kingdom of God the kingdom of the enemy that does not want to see God prevail, the Messiah born, peace for the world. So God is going to work very hard, not hard for him, but he's going to work to make sure that Israel is preserved. Have you ever carried a hot pan of food or pot from kitchen to the table while kids run around? If you've had that experience, you know that you do that trying to preserve this precious cargo. You do that with many warnings and sometimes physical force 
a kick of the leg or a stiff arm. You end up like Jamal Charles trying to carry the, the ball into the end zone, right? Stiff arming, pushing away. Sometimes a little bit of force is necessary to carry that precious cargo, to preserve it, because that's what's important. That's what God is doing with Israel all along. He is carrying along this nation, preserving it, sometimes using force, pushing other things away, so that it could be preserved, so that the Messiah could be born. John Wenham, theologian, writes, The chosen people was the precious casket in which was to be placed a priceless jewel, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of men. Against this people, Satan directed his fiercest attacks, and to the preservation of this people in righteousness, God directed his fiercest defense. The battle was real and bloody. This is why there was war. Because there is an agenda to keep the Messiah from being born. Now, this is why we as Christians no longer need to engage in real physical battle, because the battle has been won. We are on the other side of victory. The child was born. The Messiah did live and die, and is now resurrected and is ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling in victory, His physical safety is no longer threatened by anything the enemy can do. The battle's already been won. There's no physical danger that can threaten the salvation plan of God, so we as his people don't need to protect anything, but we wait for the Messiah to return and fully bring peace. So we don't go out to seek to conquer enemies in the same way Israel had to, or did, or was called to by God. But in their time, there were enemies, the Messiah was still to come, and there was bloody battle. And maybe the most disturbing element of that is found in verses 16 through 18. Here, the instruction is for executing judgment. That's what's going on in verses 16 through 18. Here the Lord calls not just for conquests, but elimination, removal. Verses 16 through 18 are about executing judgment. And Israel, in their role as God's people, um, maybe to put it bluntly, is to be the fist of God for the people in Canaan. Verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Parasites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Note the distinction. Previous verses, this is what you're to do when engaging with all the nations around that are far off. But in this one instance, in this one context, when you engage with the people who are in the land of Canaan, the promised land, this is what you are to do. So this is not a command for all war at all times for Israel, but a specific command in this specific instance For the people that fall within the promised land, 
God requires complete elimination. Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites were to be wiped out and removed from what would become the land of Israel. Why? Does God call for this because he is xenophobic, cruel, imperialistic? Again, it's necessary to understand the full biblical historical picture. After the world had fallen into sin and corruption, even after the flood of judgment upon the world, there was no group of people that was righteous and holy. There was no hope of salvation in the people of earth unless God intervened. And that's what God did. He intervened. He decided to create one people for himself, in particular, out of one man, Abraham. And for a people to exist, they would need a land. So this is the promise that God made to Abraham, that through him God would create his own people, a holy nation, that they would live in a land to call their own. That would be this land of Canaan. But if you know your Bible, you know that when God called Abraham, he didn't immediately give him that land. Why? It would be hundreds of years between when God called Abraham and when he settled Abraham's people into the land. One reason, he was taking that time to show Abraham's people who he was through the Exodus, through the time in Egypt, through liberating them. That was a time of getting to know who God is. And then they're wandering in the desert. That was a time of training and purifying the people of Israel to show this is who God is and this is who you are to be. A time to shape them as his people. So there's a, a training time and time building up this people so that they could be God's people. At the same time, while God was training and raising and instructing and growing Israel, he was also being incredibly patient with the sins of the people who were in that land. The reason God didn't immediately create a people and wipe out the people in Canaan is because God is patient and merciful. So God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, Israel, shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you understand what the Lord is saying in that verse? We're going to wait a while. Why? Because the sins are still piling up in Canaan. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm not done being merciful. I'm not done being patient with them. That's the reason for the delay, because God is patient with the sins of the Amorites and all the people that were living in the land of Canaan. And they were a notoriously sinful people. Their religion involved sexual sins that corrupted them, corrupted their women and children and men. They worshipped demonic gods, were bloodthirsty, and their worship included sacrifice of people and children to their Canaanite gods. We have historical evidence of this. 
So all this went on for hundreds of years until finally God's patience and mercy ended and he was going to bring judgment upon them. And that was the role of the nation of Israel, to be God's vehicle of judgment upon them. This is not how Israel is to treat all nations for all time, but this form of elimination was only reserved for this instance in history and in this context when God would use Israel to wipe out the Canaanites, because of their sin. So Deuteronomy 9.5, God says to Israel, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Wasn't because Israel is better, wasn't because they were so holy, is because these people were deserving of judgment. So Andy Patton of the Bible Project says the conquest wasn't a massacre, it was a dismantling of a dark cultural regime. Other nations would go to war for greed. They would go to war so they could plunder and acquire treasure, acquire people, and then hold on to it. Israel, in this instance, was told, don't hold on to the things, but actually destroy it. You're not going there for greed, you're going there for worship. So destroy everything in honor of God. And we see what happens with the sin of Achan and what happened when Israelites would hold on to things for themselves and be greedy, God would judge them. Don't go to war for greed. Some nations went to war for cruelty just because they were bloodthirsty and wanted power. Israel's not to do that either. Israel went to war in the promised land only because God's judgment was on that people and they were God's vehicle for it. And the darkness had to be driven out because if it wasn't, it would corrupt Israel itself. What does this text say? God told them to devote the people to full destruction so that they may not teach you to do or according to all their abominable practices they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. They would become corrupted themselves if they didn't eliminate the people. And if the Israelites were corrupted themselves, they too would fall under judgment. And that's important. God isn't just picking on one ethnicity or one tribe. God is an equal opportunity judger of sin. Israel, if you fall under that corruption, you too will be eliminated. Deuteronomy 7, 3-4 says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Israel was just as much, if not more, subject to judgment as any other people. So we ask the question, is God genocidal? No, but he is a judge of sin. And that's what's going on here. Just as he judged sin in the flood just as he judged sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, just as he will judge sin when Jesus returns. God judges sin. This is the God we believe in as Christians. This is the Jesus we believe in as Christians. Jesus himself teaches these things. So you may wrestle with this and you may struggle with it, But in the end, if you are a Christian, this is the Christ you believe in. The Jesus who says in Luke 17, 26 through 30, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus teaches, when I come back, judgment will come quickly and suddenly. As John Wenham says, the judgments of hell as portrayed by Jesus are more terrible even than the judgments of Deuteronomy. But here's the key. God offers peace. Just as Israel is to offer peace to their enemies, so the Lord offers peace to his people before judgment comes. Israel, when they went out, offered peace to all their enemies. Joshua 11.19 says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They went out and offered peace, and nobody took it. There were a few people here and there. Rahab. She was part of the people of Canaan. But she finds peace with the people of God. And so she's saved. Not because she's more holy or more righteous than anybody else. But because she has made peace with the Lord and his people. People could be spared and find salvation if they made peace with God. And that is the same offer that is before us in Jesus Christ. God judges all sin, but he also is a merciful God who leaves a way of salvation for all people. Romans 5.1 says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way of mercy, the way of peace, the, the olive branch offered to all people who stand under God condemned. All throughout, there's never been a time where God has not offered peace to people under judgment. And that is what's going on here in Deuteronomy 20. And what does happen with the conquest of the Canaanites. Peace is offered, but not accepted. And you say, okay, I understand all that. That's the biblical, theological, historical context of sin and judgment, but it's still hard to understand because it still seems cruel to me. After all, this calls for the wiping out of men, women, and children. That's hard to wrap our heads around. Like, how could God call for that? For the execution of innocent people. Let's unpack that. And I know we're running a few minutes long here, but just as we wrap up, I think, weirdly enough, verses 19 and 20 help us. They may seem like a weird inclusion at first, but look at verses 19 and 20, talking about trees. But I think this helps us understand all of what's going on in this passage. Here we see God preserving creation. So he starts out by offering peace. And Israel started offering peace, then conquering enemies, then executing judgment on the people in Canaan in particular. And then lastly, preserving creation, verses 19 through 20. Verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down, that you may build seed works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. 
Now, what a strange way to cap off this section on war. As you're going into war, don't cut down on the trees. Don't, really what God's saying to them is, don't saw off the branch you're sitting on. You're going to go take that land. So don't cut down all the trees that are good for food. You're going to be blessed by those trees. This is just simple wisdom. Don't cut down all the trees. Now, the other trees that are not bearing fruit, you can cut those down. Those can be used to make siege works and to help you siege and take siege of the city. But for those trees that, trees that bear fruit, keep them alive for your benefit. Now, here's another way of looking at this. An important question to ask in verses 19 through 20. Why are the trees spared? Even the fruit-bearing ones, why are they spared? Why would they be kept alive while men, women, and children are killed? Are trees more valuable than people? Why aren't the trees wiped out? And the answer is, the trees are innocent. Notice the question that's asked. Are the trees human? Why wipe them out? The implication humans might need to be wiped out. The trees are spared because they have something that no other human has. Innocence. Moral neutrality. So we come into this question and we ask, why would God wipe out innocent people? And the answer is they aren't innocent. One commentator says, It is only humans, ironically, the image of God and the crowning glory of creation, who sin against the Creator in such egregious ways as to call upon themselves divine judgment. The innocent tree, tainted as it is by the fall of humankind, is nevertheless not culpable and should therefore be spared. How could God call for the elimination of innocent women and children? And part of the answer is they're not innocent. They're all born under the curse of sin. And this has been the teaching of the church from the beginning, that all people who are born are born under a curse and are born sinners. We are not born morally neutral. People are not born a blank slate after which they can either go good or go bad. Neither are people born perfect, destined for heaven. Rather, people are born under the curse, in sin, deserving of and under judgment. This is how all people are born. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Or Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. People are born under judgment. It is only by grace and God's mercy that we find salvation. So this is important information. We have some expecting mothers and expecting parents in here and in our church. I'm going to give you a critical piece of information. There will be a time when somebody says, Oh, your baby's so perfect. Don't believe them. Your child is wonderful and image-bearer, blessed and loved by God and you and the church and all around, but don't ever mistake all that for innocence. Your child is under a curse. In fact, your whole birthing experience is under a curse. And as parents, you need to know this because then you are given the opportunity to present a way of salvation to your cursed child. You have 
this wonderful opportunity and responsibility before God to show them the way of salvation and forgiveness. Because there's no such thing as a child born innocent, except for one time. And unlike the trees in the land of Canaan, there were no innocent people in the land of Canaan. So God was not wrong to judge them. And this is something we have to just settle with. God is right when he judges. We like to underestimate our sinfulness and we like to underestimate God's holiness. But God is a holy and righteous judge and he has the right to judge and in fact he has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation because he is the holy creator. That might not be comfortable for us but it's something we have to come to terms with. We are the clay. He is the potter. And he is righteous and just to do what he wills with his clay. And in the end, we will see God is not a genocidal moral monster. He's a holy creator merciful and patient, a righteous judge who will, in his unending goodness, preserve his creation through salvation and judgment. Which ones will be spared? The trees that bear fruit. The others will be cut down. How do you be a fruit-bearing tree? By the grace of God, you can receive Christ, you can be given the Holy Spirit, you can be born again. We're all born under a curse. You can be born again in life. And that is true because God is merciful. Merciful to protect Israelites from corruption, merciful to limit the judgment to Canaanites, Merciful to allow the Canaanites to live as long as they did. Merciful to allow individuals to be spared like Rahab. Merciful to give cities a chance at peace. Merciful to end these kind of conquests with the coming of Jesus. And merciful to provide a way of salvation from judgment for all in Jesus Christ. Our God is not genocidal. He's a creator redeeming his fallen world and bringing life through death. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your word. Help us to trust it, even when it's hard, Lord. Even after all of this, we, we wrap our heads around the, the biblical context, the, the knowledge that you are holy beyond our understanding, that we are um, born in sin and sinful beyond our understanding. We, we can't comprehend um, the magnitude of our sin, and we, by faith, trust in your forgiveness and your mercy. All that said, it can still be difficult to wrestle with passages like this, so we do pray, Lord, that um, you give us confidence in your word, confidence in your goodness, faith to know the mercy of Jesus Christ. May all in this room, men, women, and children, know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord.
Amen.